From Advisory Board, we are bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. For years, we've been tracking site of care shifts in the healthcare industry. But it's important to remember that this trend isn't limited to the United States. We are seeing a global site of care shift, and it's accelerating. Today, I want to talk about what kinds of shifts we're seeing, why those shifts are happening, and how leaders should approach their next moves. To do that, I've brought U.S. strategy expert Colin Gelbaugh and global strategy expert Paul Trigonopoulos. Hey, Colin. Hey, Paul. Hey. Hey, Ray. We're going to be talking about things happening across the globe in healthcare. I know this is an awkward question when we're still in a pandemic, but have you gotten the chance to travel anywhere in the recent months? I actually went to Disney World <laughs> and I didn't even win the Super Bowl. So that was fun. Amazing. Went with my nieces, four and two years old. So it was their first experience. Yeah, I, we went to Mexico twice last year, uh, my partner and I, and then Italy in November. So nice. been able to get out a few times, but we timed them all when like COVID waves were at their bottom, kind of in between peaks. So we got lucky. As long as the COVID numbers stay low, I am hoping to make it to to Europe this summer. So I'll be right with you, Paul. We're going to talk about the research that you two are running. But first, I actually want to ask about an experience that you recently had, Colin, with our members. You convened a group of, I think it's hundreds of provider leaders together to talk about site of care shifts. And you actually asked them what they believe the most threatening shift is for their business. What did they say? Yeah, we convened you know, over 400 healthcare leaders recently, and overwhelmingly, almost half of them said that surgical care shifts were the most immediate and alarming shift that they're worried about. Are they right to be scared about this? Yeah, surgical shifts are, are certainly one of the biggest shifts that we recommend providers be aware of right now. What are some of the other shifts that we're tracking? Surgical care is a big one. What else? Of course, like the, the emerging shifts to telehealth and to the home, these are in the early stages, but have experienced exponential growth. And then there are other shifts, you know, that I would call more opportunistic of convenient care sites, urgent care clinics, retail clinics, expanding access where access is an issue. And then finally, diagnostic services, more groups, expanding on-site diagnostics is the last area I would call out. And those are all happening here in the U.S., but site of care shifts aren't just limited to what we're seeing in America. Paul, how does that compare with what we're seeing in international markets? Are the kinds of threats the same? So I think all of the shifts that Colin mentioned are happening, at least in part, in other countries. But there's a little bit more nuance there. Hmm. Internationally, you can think of health systems in kind of two buckets. There's the systems that want more patients and they want to grow. Those systems are private providers. They are generally worried about the same threats that Colin mentioned surgical and then anything that could harm inpatient volumes, namely home care shifts. And what kinds of countries are examples of these folks that want to grow? It's usually not full countries. Hmm. It is usually private systems within each country. So got it. 40% give or take of the population of Australia has private insurance. They can access private hospitals. Denmark, the UK, most of Scandinavia, actually, they all have a small private hospital industry that 
does want to grow. Middle East as well. For the most part, the public systems in these countries are where most of the care is delivered. Those hospitals don't really want to grow. They're trying to deliver as much care as possible, as cheaply and safely as possible, because they're responsible for the public tax dollar. For them, they are trying to shift as many services as possible into more scalable settings just to meet booming demand. Hmm. And, and Paul, you're getting to exactly where I want to go next, which is not just what we're seeing, but why it's actually happening. What are the drivers of site of care shifts? And my hunch is they're not going to be the same, certainly not between all countries, but also perhaps not between all sites. Let's start high level. What are all the drivers for site of care shifts that we're tracking? A lot of site of care shifts are triggered by regulatory changes. So that's one reason why you might see differences internationally. Reimbursement in the U.S. has been opened up for telehealth and the home setting. Medicare has just approved total knee replacements and coronary interventions for the ASCs. But some is also market level. So, you know, you think about the level of payer activism and how much they're steering care and also the growth plans of providers in the local market. And Paul, you just got at another factor that's maybe not happening in the U.S. that we are seeing play out in some of these public systems. Yeah, that is the backlog. So the deferred care or missed care that happened and is still happening from the pandemic, a lot of that is taking the form of electives that are now on a backlog that public systems have to go through. I mean, some numbers, the U.K. as of January had 6.1 million people on there backlog list. Just Ontario alone is a oh province gosh. at over a, mil- over a million. And these are for surgeries? These are elective procedures, some mm-hmm. surgeries, some diagnostic. This is generally the, the stuff that they assume you won't get more sick by delaying the service. But I mean, the numbers keep growing. Paul, I'm going to ask maybe, maybe a silly question. Can those countries just add more beds, right? There's a backlog that we see in other countries that we don't see here in the U.S. Is there appetite to kind of, I don't know, hospital build our way out of this? So hospital building and renovation is still happening. I mean, some some of these countries have old facilities. They just need to be upkept. But the focus politically now is much more on building and opening up a more diverse set of care sites things like ASCs, which historically aren't really very popular outside of the U.S., hmm. polyclinics in the community, these subacute facilities that are basically a multidisciplinary site that you can go to see a GP or a specialist. Other countries, Italy, we're seeing this in Italy and Denmark and the U.K. and Canada, there's more appetite now to just diversify and expand the number of access points because for most of these places, the hospital is just where you go for everything. So there, there is a need and a recognition that something needs to get built. The question yep. is, is it a hospital or is it some of these other things that, frankly, we still see being very popular in the U.S. or growing in popularity in the U.S.? Yes, that's exactly right. My understanding is that the backlog isn't necessarily a new problem. It might be a problem that is worse now, though, than it has ever been. And my guess is that's the same for some of these other forces that we're tracking when it comes to site of care shifts. Why are these forces accelerating now? I already mentioned one, which is policy has been changing because of the pandemic to open up reimbursement and the ability of sites to perform different kinds of procedures, right? 
there's also other factors like unprecedented investment into healthcare, growth of these alternate sites, private equity firms investing, for example, is one factor. There's one driver that you didn't mention, and I'm a little bit surprised, and that's consumer preference. Should that be part of the calculus here? Consumer preference is a factor, but it's sort of always been a factor. The acceleration we're seeing today isn't necessarily due to consumers. Physicians, a lot of times, are responsive to consumer needs, but they're still the ones driving a lot of these shifts at the end of the day. That's not the case for all site-of-care shifts. If you look at something like urgent care, where it's the consumer making the decision, they're going to be the most important factor driving that shift. What you're describing is kind of a web, and it might be a little bit hard for our audience to keep track of all the things we're talking about. There's all these different kinds of site-of-care shifts. There are different forces that have accelerated or insulating factors that have broken down that make it more likely that these shifts will actually be threatening, but they play out differently depending on the shift. I wonder if each of you can give me an example of how that might play out, whether it's surgical care, whether it's one of these more consumer preference-like places. Give me an example that makes this real. Yeah. So one example would be in the freestanding space, freestanding imaging centers, for example. A lot of shifts won't happen unless you have some triggering event to catalyze those shifts to start happening, right? So if you have a payer in your market that starts to take a really hard line and say, we are not reimbursing hospital-based imaging, that is something that could result in acceleration. Mm -hmm. Whereas let's take the flip side of that with telehealth, you know, we saw explosive growth through the pandemic as patients got vaccinated. Some of the incentives, some of the rationale for, you know, this is a safer option, wasn't there anymore. And so we saw a deceleration. So it can work in both ways. Paul, what's an international example here? I would like to focus on probably ASCs internationally. Again, because it's such a new care model in other countries, it's a new care model because, frankly, the reimbursement hasn't existed until just now. Payers are starting to think about, okay, maybe we can find a new reimbursement model for this high efficiency surgical site that isn't the hospital. But until then, I mean, it was it was just up to physicians if they wanted to find some uh, business model to stand up in a joint venture. And it was often economically unattractive because it, they just didn't have the reimbursement there. But the backlog is so big that you kind of have to be thinking about other sites of care. Yep. Backlog's so big, there's so much demand to tap into. And a lot of these procedures, you know, you can standardize and make kind of a focus factory model to just churn through the backlog as fast as possible. And I think people are capitalizing on that opportunity. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. Every day, 10,000 people in the United States turn 65. And today's healthcare system isn't set up to meet the needs of this rapidly growing group. I'm Miriam Spitzer Taub, and my team is working hard to figure out how the healthcare industry can radically improve the care model for America's seniors. Visit advisory.com slash seniors or look for a link in the show notes to learn more.
So at this point, we've talked about what shifts are happening and why those shifts are accelerating all over the globe. Now I want to talk about how our listeners should be responding. We've started to give some kind of examples of the site of care shifts that we're seeing. I wonder if you can give me an example of some really impressive shifts that are happening in markets. I think the best way to respond is to be proactive in continually assessing and monitoring the drivers influencing shifts, seeing what progressive orgs, your your competitors, what, what they are doing. Some response strategies might be joint ventures and partnerships with physician groups and, you know, taking part in these alternate site options. Um, it might be a pricing adjustment or it might be, you know, just deepening your relationship with consumers. It's a lot of blocking and tackling that you just described, Colin, which I think is tough because people imagine really creative strategy when it comes to managing through a disruptive force like site of care shifts. But the answer you just described is very in the weeds. Right. Yeah. And it kind of has to be in the weeds because site of care shifts are a market level thing, right? Like every market is going to look different based on what the types of providers look like and what payers are doing, what different entities are doing to accelerate these shifts. So let's talk about one of those different kinds of markets. Paul, I understand that you have a really creative story about an organization that's taking site of care shifts to a level that we haven't seen here in the United States. Yeah. So this is a system out of Israel. And Israel is generally a good market to look at for a health system kind of self-disrupting its access points because it's an HMO model, right? They can afford to move around where people access care to cheaper options. On the psych- psychiatric side, they actually are working with their payer to create a psychiatric bundle where basically if someone comes to the ED and is, they think, clinically safe, to, they can keep them healthy at home. They get a bundle to keep that person healthy at home with remote patient monitoring. And if that person readmits in 12 months, they don't get paid. Hmm. They went to the payer to propose this. They had to convince the payer to actually do this. It's totally flipped, right? You'd imagine the payer at least in the U.S., you'd imagine the payer would be more more pushy, right? Yeah, that's completely backwards to how I would normally think of things going. Why was the provider proactive in, in asking the payer to do this? Because they and kind of other health systems in Israel are very tapped into the local tech startup economy. A lot of tech startups are able to plug into the healthcare business and keep people healthy at home serve a lot of other uses as well. But they have just been on this journey for the last few decades of embedding technology into healthcare delivery to the point where now they're comfortable actually just disrupting their access models. I love this example, but let me reveal to you what makes me worried about it. As innovative and provocative as it is, it also presents a kind of new risk that the system just gets even more fragmented, which we all know is already a problem with healthcare in the U.S. and beyond. So how do we balance kind of taking a proactive approach, making some of these shifts happen without just further fragmenting healthcare? Yeah, and this is where I I think it's more helpful to look away from that Israel example. They are able to keep all their home care alternatives in check because they are so technologically advanced. They have kind of a brain hub in their system that they can They can organize and understand all the non-hospital care that's happening. But your average system 
is not that advanced, right? Mm -hmm. They are not that sophisticated. What they're doing instead is centralizing the work and the change management and the identification of what service should shift somewhere else and the rollout and implementation of that shift. They're centralizing that into a dedicated team, a dedicated function to at least have a single view over what is happening, where care is shifting, what the opportunities are, and then working with clinicians to kind of get them off the ground. I want to highlight something that you just said because our audience may have missed it. You said that managing site of care shifts is actually a change management problem. Colin, frankly, you mentioned something like this earlier and said, a lot of this is a lot of blocking and tackling. It's looking at where your market is. It's managing the data. It's understanding the specific threats that you face from the payers and the disruptors and the competitive landscape in your specific area. And I don't think our audience would typically think of something like site of care shifts as a change management problem. Do you have any examples of someone who's doing that change management really well? Yeah, so I think the best example we have is a, a system called West Morton Health and Hospital Service. They come out of Australia. They're a 350-bed hospital with four sites in rural Queensland. Very underbedded for their population, and the population they have the most drastic population growth in all of Queensland. So they really are in need of getting more ways to deliver care in a scalable fashion that isn't just in a hospital bed. They are really betting on a shift to virtual care. They partnered with Philips to stand up a pretty comprehensive virtual care model, and they can just tack on virtual care programs to this kind of platform. So just one place in the Philips system that all of their virtual care programs sit, and they are just going to go service by service and put Mm -hmm. as many virtual options on that program as possible. And they actually set up a dedicated team. It's called the virtual care support team. And they think about it and talk about it like a center of excellence. This team is responsible for doing all the data analysis to identify opportunities to create new virtual models. They do financial forecasting and modeling. They get clinical buy-in. They implement the models along with the clinicians. There's a few other kind of functions that they serve. But this is like how they think of side of care shift specifically for them in the virtual space, but I think it can be adapted, right? For them, it's a center of excellence and a single place where all of this institutional knowledge and muscle memory sits. Change management is an issue, right? It's, it's harder than just saying, you know, we need physicians to start performing their surgeries in a surgery center. That's not easy to do when habits are entrenched. Exactly. Um, but it's not just about that. It's about being smart about where you place new sites, not to cannibalize yourself, what operational changes you need, what care model changes you need. It's a different facility. You have different staff and you need to be able to manage that change because it is different than what you've done in the past. Ah, and that gets into not just how we respond, but when do we respond? And frankly, that's the biggest question that I get from senior leaders. They loosely kind of agree that site of care shifts will happen, but many are not willing to cannibalize their own business, especially now after we've been living through two years of the greatest public health crisis of our time. So what advice do you have for leaders who are trying to understand when the right move is? I think when is going back to those market variables, right? Like when is the right time to make the move? But to answer your question about cannibalization, the easy answer there is let's place sites not in our service area. Let's put Mm. it 
in another service area and it's no longer a disruptive threat to me then it's a growth opportunity which is an interesting philosophical shift because i hear most people saying we must be willing to disrupt ourselves and you're saying there's another way which is a growth path you have to have options and one of the benefits of the whole shift to outpatient is being closer to patients and not having just a central hub, but moving towards a distributed model that's more convenient for patients also allows you to reach more patients in new markets. And I just want to add on to what Colin said. Ray, you mentioned that what you hear in the market is that leaders kind of know that side of care shifts are happening. We actually do know this. And we have data on it. Last year, KPMG did their survey of 200 healthcare CEOs across, I think, eight to 10 countries, including the US. And they specifically asked about site of care shifts. The question was, what is your stance on kind of shifting the delivery of care out of hospitals into the community? 63% of respondents said it was a priority. 18% were doing anything about it. Oh my God, no. (laughs) Right. And then it goes a step further on the, just specifically with virtual care, 66% said shifting from in-person to digital care delivery was a priority. 7% were doing something about it. Oh my goodness. So there's like a huge gulf between intent and action here. I think internationally, the answer to your question, which is when you start embarking on this, now that the cat's out of the bag and all these insulating factors have kind of turned into tailwinds to push systems to shift care, I think the sooner the better. If I'm honest with the two of you, I have questions about the role of the hospital, period, right? Think about it. Hospitals used to be the center of the health system. In fact, at advisory board, we used to call them hospital systems. Today, we call them health systems. I want you to roll the tape forward for me. In a world where care has fundamentally moved into the community, in a world where executives not just agree with the idea of site of care shifts, but are actually taking action and actually doing the change management well, do we need to change the way that we think about hospitals? Do hospitals exist? My personal take, we will always need hospitals the role of the hospital might change in the community. You know, you could see a future where hospitals are serving more of the emergent needs, more of the intensive care, and some of the routine surgical care, the physician office visits are pushed out into the community. I think that's probably the most likely scenario. The other scenario is hospitals respond. They reduce their cost structures, which is a lot of the driving force behind these shifts. And they are competitive from a cost standpoint operationally, and that would translate to lower prices eventually, or at least moderation of growth in prices. Paul, what do you think the future of the hospital is, maybe outside of the U.S.? I think what Colin said in just his first scenario is already happening in other countries. Hmm. Denmark has been after this since the mid-2000s. They're kind of the the first country out the gate. Legislatively, they started repurposing acute care sites in 2007 into kind of subacute facilities and community clinics, and then taking the saved money from their fixed cost infrastructure and reinvesting that into existing hospitals to make them like quaternary state-of-the-art mm. facilities that are just acute and trauma sites. So the balance where you get care is more often than not in the community or just not in a quote-unquote hospital in Denmark. And they've we interviewed their VP of policy 
last year for this work. And they said they're going to keep doing it and try to shift more outpatient visits into primary care and into the community for the next 10, 15 years. Like this is the path that they're headed on. And other countries, especially in Europe, but New Zealand, Canada, I mean, they're thinking and talking this way as well, just a little bit behind. Well, Colin, Paul, when it comes to site of care shifts, what is the one thing that you want leaders in the U.S. and across the globe to take away from this discussion? Colin, let's start with you. For me, especially from the hospital perspective, just keep in mind, you don't have to take this lying down. You can be an active participant in the shifts and benefit from them. It doesn't always have to be a negative thing. And in fact, that is likely going to be the next phase of your growth is in the outpatient space. And so being active there will ultimately benefit incumbents in the long run. Paul, what about you? I think internationally, it's important for leaders to recognize and kind of internalize that this is a slow burn. Like this is going to happen year over year for the foreseeable future. And because of that, there's a big risk in where health systems are now, which is leaving this work as side of desk work. We're just having it up to the clinicians of kind of proposing new shifts or proposing new models, right? There's a lot of gaps in the critical components that a system needs to elevate this to kind of a strategic and purposeful level. We are actually coming out with uh, with a strategy kind of gut check audit tool hmm. in the next couple weeks that itemizes all the components of a good strategy and then allows systems to benchmark where they are against their peers around the world. So hopefully that at least helps with the sum of the problem. Way to tease upcoming advisory board resources. Stay tuned for more from Advisory Board International. I love it. I love it. Well, Colin, Paul, thanks so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks. Thank you, Ray. When it comes to site of care shifts, it's easy for leaders to be pessimistic about what that will look like for their future and frankly, for their financial outlook. But I hope what you heard from Colin and Paul is that there's actually a lot to be optimistic about and that this can be the new growth path for today's health systems, whether that's in the U.S. or anywhere around the globe. We have so much more to say on this. So remember, as always, we're here to help. I want you to roll the tape forward for me in a world where, God, in a world, let me say that again. (laughs) 